you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it out and turn to the book of Zephaniah. Now, I'm sure that many of you will have a hard time finding the book of Zephaniah. I can't give you a page number. If, uh, I can give you the page number that's in my Bible, but that will do you no good uh, this morning. But if you are struggling finding Zephaniah, just, and you know where Habakkuk is, uh, Zephaniah follows Habakkuk, and it precedes Haggai, uh, and that may help some of you uh, not at all. Um, so it, if it is no help, then go to Matthew's Gospel, which I trust most of you will be able to find Matthew's Gospel, and take a left and keep going until you get to Zephaniah. It won't be too far down the road. Zephaniah, the end of Zephaniah's prophecy, we'll begin reading in verse 14, and I'll read through the end, verse 20, of chapter 3 of the book of Zephaniah. Give attention, this is God's Word. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day... It shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame, and I will gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. Thus far, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, may he add his blessing to it. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, our God, we come to you this morning as needy sinners, needing to hear from you, our God, needing to be reminded that you, the God of the universe, are not against us. If we are here and have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're trusting in you for our salvation, for our deliverance, Father, remind us that you are not against us, no matter what our circumstances may tell us. Remind us that you are very much for us because of Christ. And if you are for us, Father, in Christ, there is nothing and there is no one that can ever ultimately be against us. Remind us of that, Father, we pray this morning. And help us, help us, we pray, by your Spirit to rejoice and to exalt with all our hearts because of who Jesus is. And what he's done. Bless us, we pray, Father, not for my sake, not for our sakes, but for Christ's sake. 
we pray. Amen. Now, my guess, and I'm going to venture out on a limb, is that none of you this morning probably will ever have heard an Advent sermon on the book of Zephaniah. My guess is probably most of you have never heard an Advent sermon on the book uh, on, on Zephaniah chapter three. None of you have probably heard a book uh, a sermon on the whole entire book of Zephaniah in terms of an Advent sermon. My guess is probably you've never heard a sermon period on the book of Zephaniah. Although some of you, I hope, will have heard one at least somewhere along the lines. Uh, a number, number of years ago, I think it was the um, the Bible app. Maker Bible Gateway. Some of you may have Bible Gateway on your phones or may use, uh, get on their website to read the scriptures online or on your phone. If you do, then uh, you'll be, you will have been part of this survey if you were on it when they did this survey. But they took uh, data from all of their app users and all of those who have read the Bible on, on their uh, website, uh, Bible Gateway, and they compiled all of the books of the Bible that, that people read most and the books of the Bible that people read least. Well, if you can guess which of the books of the Bible were the least read, uh, and if you guessed the, uh, the, the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets, you'd be right. Uh, among all of the books of the Bible that were the most, uh, or the least read, uh, uh, Obadiah was number one. Uh, and I thought about preaching an Advent sermon on Obadiah this morning, but I chose the much more frequently read Zephaniah to come with that uh, instead. But Zephaniah is one of those books that you and I have rarely encountered. We've rarely given time to. No doubt, if you've read through the Scriptures, which I hope you have, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to take that up in 2024. But if you've read through the Scriptures, no doubt you've read the book of Zephaniah. But this morning, I want to encourage you with the end of Zephaniah's prophecy. Because I think this is the perfect place for an Advent sermon. This is the perfect text For an Advent sermon, even as we prepare to celebrate the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and we look ahead to the second coming, the second Advent of Christ when he will return in glory and in praise, this is the best place to start. And I want to, I say that for two main reasons. Number one, Zephaniah is highlighting here at the very end of his prophecy, the very real struggle that we all have to find joy. And joy not in our circumstances, but a joy that is circumstance-independent, a joy that is real, a joy that is lasting. Because a joy found in our circumstances comes and goes. A happiness that is grounded in our circumstances is there as long as our circumstances are good. But when our circumstances are not worth rejoicing in, that kind of a joy fades quickly. It disappears almost all together. But what Zephaniah is trying to call the people of Judah to, what Zephaniah is trying to call you and I, you and me to, is a joy that transcends our circumstances. It's a joy, it's a very real joy that's grounded in the first and second coming of Christ. This passage is all about the first and second coming of Christ and how that gives God's people real and lasting joy. That's why I say this is the perfect Advent text. It's all about the very real struggle for joy in this world and the very real basis for joy that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. 
So I want to spend a little bit of time looking at that. If you're wondering about what Zephaniah is doing, I want to, I want to suggest to you this morning that Zephaniah is talking about both the first and second comings of Christ, and he's doing that in one passage, using one set of terms and one, uh, if you will, uh, one, one passage, one, uh, one reference, dealing with both the first and second comings of Christ. It's kind of like um, when I was a kid, uh, I, I, my dad was an engineer, my dad used to have this pocket protector. Now, some of you may not know what a pocket protector is. If you're under probably 20, you may not ever have seen a pocket protector. But in the 70s and the 80s, when I was growing up, apparently, uh, they were all the rage. Because my dad had one, and I used to love as a kid to play with it. He'd keep this plastic pocket protector sitting up on his dresser, and I remember going into his bedroom as a, as a boy, and I would take that pocket protector and I'd play with the pens. He had probably six or seven different pens in there, different shapes, different sizes, different colors. One of them, though, was not actually a pen at all. It looked like a pen, but it wasn't a pen. You see, what it actually was, was a pointer that he would use for presentations. And that pen, although it it was the size of a pen, would telescope out to about three feet long. And he'd be able to use that to point to the screen long before, I guess, we had those laser pointers to be able to use to give a presentation. Well, I used to love to play with that. I'm sure I expanded it out to the three feet full length, and I would use it probably as a sword with my brother and my sister, no doubt. I'm surprised that it retained its straight form over the years because I'm sure I used it for things it was not intended to be used for. But nonetheless, I think what Haggai, what, excuse me, what Zephaniah is doing here is something very similar. He's taking the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, which are, if you will, thousands and thousands of years apart. And he's telescoping them down to about the size of a pen. He's looking at them as if they're one event. You and I can stand here and we can look at what comes in the future. Or better yet, if we were able to get outside of time and space and we were able to stand from a far enough distance, we could look at the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ behind it. And it would look as though they're, as though they're one event. It's only when we come and stand alongside that we notice that the first coming is thousands of years before we get to the second coming. I think that's something of what Zephaniah is doing here. He's taking the telescoped, if you will, out view uh, or separation, distance between the first coming and the second coming, and he's bringing them back down to something so close and manageable that we can look at them together. And it's in both the first coming and the second coming of Christ that you and I find real and lasting joy. So that's what I want to look at for a few minutes this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to keep them out in front of you because we will be looking at what Zephaniah has to say in more detail. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is the struggle for joy in this world. The struggle for joy in this world that Zephaniah points out not only to his original audience, but to you and to me by extension. If you look Back at the very first verse, very first chapter of the book of Zephaniah, you'll see something of the context for, for the ministry of Zephaniah. He's ministering in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. If you remember anything at all about your history of the Old Testament, you may remember that Josiah was one of the good guys. 
Josiah was one of the good kings, one of the few good kings that came out of Judah. He was the last good king, in a sense, really the last king. Because if you remember, in, and if you don't remember, I encourage you to go home this afternoon, look at 2 Kings 23, 24, and 25. In 2 Kings 23 through 25, we see the history that is played out right here, the context for Zephaniah's ministry. And that is that Josiah... The good king Josiah, who restores much of the, 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 the religion of Judaism, and he tears down the idols that have been set up uh, so long ago and worshipped as idols by God's people. Uh, he had torn them all down and restored the law uh, to God's people. Josiah is put to death by Pharaoh Necho. For Pharaoh Necho, uh, on, a law, on a whim, seemingly, puts Josiah to death. And conquers thereby the people of Judah. He puts a puppet king in place who is actually Eliakim, uh, Josiah's son. Uh, And then uh, a number of years go by and I think Eliakim's son takes over who's uh, also a puppet king in place. But it's during, I think, Jehoiachin's reign that Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the city of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar comes in about 30 years after the death of Josiah. Nebuchadnezzar comes in with his invading army, and they destroy, they set the temple on fire. They set the city of Jerusalem on fire, and they carry away into exile thousands and thousands and thousands of the people of Judah, mostly the skilled, educated upper class, leaving only the poorest of the poor to fend for themselves in Jerusalem. That's the context that's coming. Zephaniah wants to prepare the people of God for what's about to come. About 30 or so years from his ministry, that's what's going to happen to the people of Judah. And so he's preparing them. He's preparing them by commanding them now to rejoice. In verse 14, he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. He is calling them to rejoice. He's calling them to sing. Four times he pleads with them. Four times he commands them. Now, my Bible study, I've not found a verse or a a sequence of verses in which there are four admonitions, four exhortations together to praise, to worship, to rejoice. The most I've been able to find is two in the Psalms. But here, the prophet Zephaniah doubles that number. He puts four admonitions, four exhortations to sing praise to God, to lift up your heart, to exalt with all of your heart, to rejoice in the Lord. Four times he calls God's people to rejoice and to sing. And he does it as, I think, as a reminder of where, of what they're to look for in the context of struggle in this world. If you see not only in verses 14, but look down with me down to verse 18 and verse 19. I think there's a hint of what's to come for God's people, not only in the fact that he's calling them to rejoice and to sing, but also in verses 18 and 19. He says in verse verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. Now, the, the likely reference here 
is the fact that these folks who are in exile, they're away from Jerusalem. If you remember, at least three times every year, God's people, and especially the males, were meant to make pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. There were three feasts every year that God people, God's people had to make pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate. Do you remember what they were? Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. These three feasts every year, and no doubt there were other festivals that were celebrated by God's people at God's command. And here I think the point is that, that because God's people are no longer living in the land, that God had given to them because they're now living, there's a step there, because uh, they're no longer living in the land that God had given to them. It's one of the, 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 the dangers of walking in the pulpit, uh, and it's not a familiar pulpit to you. I'll have to keep that in mind. When you put guardrails here on the sides, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, because they're no longer living in the land, they're living in now exile, they cannot return for these feasts. So they're mourning the festivals. They're mourning the fact that they cannot be there because they're prohibited by being, by way of exile, from returning and making pilgrimage. So they're mourning. And that's no doubt pointing ahead. Zephaniah is reminding them or is telling them what's going to be happen, happening here in the future. Verse 19, he highlights the fact that they're going to be living under oppression. That's the real life picture of circumstances yet to come that are not what we would choose for ourselves. If you ask the people of Judah, what do you want to happen in the next 30 years? My guess is not a one of them would say, yeah, I really would like to be carted off into exile, to be prevented from coming back and returning to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of, of, of Passover, the feast of booze, and the feast of weeks. I'd really like for that to happen. And you know what? To, to, to put icing on the cake, I'd really like for the temple to be burned, and I'd like for the city of Jerusalem to be burned as well. None of God's people would have chosen that. And yet that's what's about to come. You and I struggle. We struggle with circumstances in our lives that are not what we would choose. You know, as I've gotten older, the struggle to find joy in Christ and not in the things of this world has gotten more and more difficult. My body has gotten older. Things that hurt or never hurt before begin to hurt. Aches and pains. I cannot exercise with the same intensity or the same frequency that I used to be able to exercise. I cannot do all of the same things or maybe even remember all of the same things that I used to be able to remember. My children have gotten older as well and I'm paying car insurance for driving children. We were looking at it the other night at how much it costs for a male child to drive. This case in the state of Georgia, in Atlanta, it's not cheap. Um, I'm paying college tuition. And college tuition is not cheap. So as my children have gotten older, my expenses have increased in ways that I maybe have not anticipated as we've gotten older, our parents have gotten older too. And so we're facing aging and aging in our parents and loved ones that we've never experienced before. But more challenging maybe than all of those things is the fact that as I've gotten older, maybe because I've, I now know more people, 
than I did when I was younger. But whatever the case is, I, this year, just in 2023, I have had seven close friends or family members of close friends that have died and have gone to be with the Lord. It's the most in any year I've ever experienced. And some of you probably have had things like that or or far more uh, in your experience. But to have seven close friends, not just seven people that I know, but seven people that I know well that have invested in me or or seven family members of people that I know and love and to mourn with those who mourn and to weep with those who weep, it's a reminder, isn't it? That if we're finding joy in the circumstances of this world, we're never going to find it. It's not there. The world wants you to think that it's there. Every commercial, isn't right? Every commercial that you see is, find your joy in this new car. Find your joy in this new piece of jewelry. Find your car in this new whatever it may be, this new TV show. But there is no joy. Zephaniah is writing to tell us and to tell God's people at the time that circumstances are coming that will not be worth rejoicing in. You will mourn and you'll be oppressed. And that struggle for joy in the midst of hard circumstances is a very real part of life. And so that's the first thing that I want you to see is the very real, very hard truth. That life is not easy. And the struggle that we experience as Christians to find joy is a struggle. It's a struggle. But it's a struggle that you and I can can fight well. We can struggle well because Zephaniah holds out not only the reality of a struggle, but he holds out the promise of joy that is to come. Because the whole focus of Zephaniah's prophecy is not only the reality of a coming struggle, but what he's doing, he's trying to prepare God's people for in the event, in the event that these circumstances are not going to be what they want, in the event of circumstances that are going to be hard and difficult, he wants them to be able to rejoice in and through them by pointing them to reality that will be theirs in the future. The first thing he wants them to do, he's directing their attention forward. He's pointing them, if you will, eschatologically to what will be theirs at the end of time. This phrase, day of the Lord, it occurs in verse 16 of our passage. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. On that day is referring to the day of the Lord, which is Zephaniah's, one of Zephaniah's themes. If you look back to chapter 1, look at verse 7. There Zephaniah says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated his guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's son. Verse 9, on that day I will punish. Verse 10, on that day declares the Lord. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry. Verse 18, the day... Of the wrath 
of the Lord. Verse 2 of chapter 2, the day of the anger of the Lord. Verse 3, the day of the anger of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 8, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. Verse 9, at that time I will change the speech. Verse 11, on that day. And so it's that day that he's talking about here. This is what Zephaniah wants God's people to see in the midst of pending disaster, in the midst of circumstances that are not worth rejoicing in. He wants to direct their gaze to a coming day, a day that will be great for God's people and terrible for those who are not. You see, the day that he has in mind here is the last day. It's the second coming of Christ. That's the ultimate reality that Zephaniah has in view. And so what he's trying to hold out to the people of Judah is to be able to rejoice in circumstances, not in circumstances, excuse me, not to rejoice in circumstances, but to rejoice in the fact that there will be a day when every wrong will be made right, when every injustice will be be made right. There'll be a day, as he says in verse 15, when all of the judgments against you will be taken away. There'll be a day, verse 15, when the king of Israel, Yahweh, will be in your midst. Really and truly and forevermore. There'll be a day, verse 16, that we will not fear. There'll be a day when the Lord, verse 19, changes our shame into praise. You see, isn't that what happens at the last day? When you and I stand and we're told that all of us will face the judgment day, that when we stand at that great and last day and all of our sins and all of Satan's accusations against you because of what you've done, Because of your thoughts, because of your words, everything Satan has to say, he will do his worst, and all of it will come to naught. All of it will not bring shame, it'll bring praise because of what Christ has done. You see, that's the beauty of the last day. That every sin, every thought, every word, every deed, everything we've done, in a sense, will be displayed before the nations. And rather than causing shame, because there is no guilt, there will be no shame. So rather than causing shame, it will be changed into praise. And the nations will praise God. Because what should be shameful is no longer. Because Jesus bore the shame. Jesus bore the guilt. So this is pointing us. Zephaniah is pointing God's people to thousands of years in the future when everything will be undone. They will be delivered. They'll be delivered from their judgments. They'll be delivered from their enemies. They'll they'll experience God's presence in its fullness. Verse 15 and verse 17. They'll experience transformation, lasting, real transformation 
Their shame will be turned to praise. And reproach will be changed to renown. And they'll be restored. Their fortunes will be restored. Justice will be, will be rendered. Oppression will be overcome. Fortunes will be restored. Zephaniah is pointing God's people to what will be theirs eventually when the end comes. But I think he's doing more than that. He's also pointing them to the reality of the incarnation, Christ's first coming. And this is what I was talking about before. Rather than taking these two events and separating them so that they're thousands of years apart, he sandwiches them down together into one event. And I think there are several hints in the passage that he's talking not only about the promise of joy that is to come in the second advent of Christ, but he's also talking about the joy that for you and me who live after the first advent is ours, the reality of joy now. And that's my third point, the struggle for joy in this world, the promise for joy to come, and the reality of joy now. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, Zephaniah says, sing Aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. I wonder if that sounds familiar to any of you this morning. Have you heard anything like that before? Maybe during the earthly ministry of Christ himself. Do you remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem in that last week of his life, the triumphal entry? Remember what was said, as they waved palm branches and shouted out to him, they shouted out the words, didn't they? Or at least they cited the words, the gospel writers do, of Zechariah 9.9. Look over, if you will, in your Bibles, a couple of books over, Haggai and then Zechariah. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Do you see that? Two of the same verbs occur here and the same descriptors. O daughter of Zion, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. In Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15, he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, if you will, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your hearts, O daughter of Jerusalem, verse 15. The king is in your midst. Now, it's fascinating to me. If you look at John chapter 12, John's account of the triumphal entry, John himself cites from Zechariah 9.9 like the gospel writers typically do. But John does more than that. He uses the language of Zephaniah chapter 3. He uses in verses 13 through 15 of John 12, John talks about, O daughter of Zion... And he calls Christ the king of Israel. Not just the king in Zechariah 9.9, but the king of Israel. The whole point, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Zechariah 9.9 is, if you will, quoting from or alluding to Zephaniah 3.14. Zephaniah 3.14 is in Zechariah's mind as he says what he says, as as he writes what he writes. And it's in, my opinion, it's in the minds of the gospel writers as they allude to Zechariah 9.9 on the triumphal entry. So what he's pointing to here is the king of Israel, who at the triumphal entry is in their midst. 
and they know it not. He's in their midst. But more than that, did you notice in verse 17, the names that are used in verse 17, the things that are said about God in verse 17, how they are first advent things and first advent names. Verse 17, we're told that Yahweh, that's the covenant name for the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. Now, wasn't that said about Christ at his first coming? You remember what name the angel told Joshua, or excuse me, Joseph to give to his son, the son that was going to be born to Mary, the virgin? He said, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God in your midst, God with you. God with you. And this one in verse 17, we're told that Zephaniah is pointing to Yahweh, your God, with you. Yahweh, your God, who's in your midst. That's fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. That's fulfilled in the first advent of Christ. He's Yahweh in your midst. And the proof of that is then what the angel said to Joseph. You will call him Jesus. Why? Do you remember why he was to receive the name Jesus? The angel tells him, he says, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Greek name Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua. Joshua, which means, quite literally in the Hebrew, Yah, Yahweh saves. Shua, Yahshua, Yahweh saves. Here's Jesus, Yahweh saves, because he will save his people from their sins. He's Emmanuel, God in your midst, God with you. You see, the whole point of Matthew chapter 1 is to get us to see that this one who is born of the Virgin Mary is none other than Yahweh himself. He's Yahweh who saves. And that's why you'll call him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. And he's Yahweh in your midst. He's Yahweh with you. You see, that's exactly what Zephaniah says. The Lord your God is in your midst. Yahweh your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save his people from their sins. And so I think there are several indicators here that seem to point to what Zephaniah has in mind is not only the second advent of Christ, but the first as well, in which Jesus will come. And for you and me, that means that joy is not just something that is ours in the future when Jesus returns, but that real and lasting joy is ours now. Every one of the things that will be ours fully in the time to come. The deliverance from judgment. The deliverance from our enemies, verse 15. The the presence of God in our midst, dwelling with us. God with us who will save. Freedom, if you will, from oppression. Transformation from shame into praise and reproach to renown. Restoration, injustices righted and restoration of our fortunes. 
All of these things that will be ours in full in the second advent of Christ are ours now in the first advent. They're ours now in his first coming. We experience real deliverance now. We experience real presence. God is with us now by way of his Holy Spirit. We, we experience real transformation now and real restoration now in part. Not in full, but in part. So what that tells us who live in between the two incarnations, the two comings of Christ, the two advents, what that tells us is that since Christ has already come, there's real and lasting joy that is ours for the taking. Those of us who believe in Christ, we have every reason to find joy in this world, even in circumstances that are not what we would choose. Because joy is not found in circumstances. Joy is found in the fact that Yahweh is in our midst. Emmanuel, Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. You see, if you are here this morning and you put your faith in Christ, you have been saved of all your sins, from all of your sins. You are being saved. And you will one day be fully and finally saved. But what is true at that last day is ours now. And so you and I can rejoice, we can shout aloud and exult with all of our hearts because joy is possible here. It is a reality that we can have here in and through Christ. Let me end just by this story that will, I think, sum up all of what I'm trying to say. There was a 19th century pastor in the New England area by the name of Edward Payson. Some of you may recognize the name. He had a daughter, at least one daughter, who wrote a, a number of things over the years. Uh, but he had many hardships. Two of his children died in infancy. He himself suffered from tuberculosis uh, and suffered for most of his life from a pretty severe uh, about with tuberculosis. But his greatest struggle stemmed from an accident that he had when he was only 24 years old. He was thrown from his horse when he was riding one day when he was 24, and he was paralyzed. He, uh, and his, that paralysis grew over the next 20 years, and he died of the injuries he sustained in that accident at 24. So for 20 years, he grappled with paralysis that slowly took over his body and rendered it such that he could not move at all and eventually succumbed to those injuries and died. Right before he died, he said this. Looking back over his life, this is his reflection. Christians might avoid much trouble and inconvenience if they would only believe what they profess. That God is able to make them happy without anything else. Hmm. To mention my own case, God has been depriving me of one blessing after another. But as every one was removed, He has come in and filled up the place. 
And now when I am crippled and not able to move, I am happier than I was in all my life before. You see what he's saying. Circumstances will change in our lives. We will all age. We will all experience death. That is for sure. We'll all experience the death of loved ones if we don't die first. We will experience the slings and the arrows of outrageous fortune here. But in the midst of all of that, we can find real and lasting joy in Christ because He came, He took on flesh. He entered time and space, became like us in every way, yet without sin, lived a perfect life, and He died on the cross, bearing the weight, the guilt, and the shame of all of our sins, so that you and I might have our shame changed into praise. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel message? And that's what we celebrate this time of year, that Christ has come. It's no wonder, is it? It's no wonder that the angels appeared to the shepherds and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Good news of a great joy that is for all the world. You see, joy is what we profess. Joy is what we have. Joy in part, now. Joy in full, to come. Amen. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father and our God, we're grateful for your word. We pray that you'd write its truths upon our hearts and that you'd bless and keep us, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.